just whatever. It was quite cute. Anyway, Red Letter Revival, let's get into this thing. The church is God's absolute bride, and we love this. We had, we had woven this last week, and it was so amazing. We had such a great time with the women. And, uh, but today we are going to, yeah, 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 so many good things happened. Last week, if you can remember, seven, day, seven days ago, it's only been seven days, uh, we opened up with John 1.1, 1, 1, and I want to start there. And I didn't tell the, the projection gal back there, but I'm going to go ahead and start with John 1.1, 1, 1, okay? Because this is truly the beginning, because it's starts with in the beginning. In, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. So those words right there, not, they're not red. I'm just going to let you know. And I know that we're focusing on the red letters, but that is the introduction to the the, the Savior of the, the world who actually the words that he spoke are read. And so that helps us to understand who this gentleman is named Jesus. He was in the beginning. He is eternal. He was with God and he is God. So there's a Trinity thing going on there. He was with God and is God. So that's kind of an, a mysterious thing. And it's something that eventually we'll get into and kind of talk a little bit more about. But he was with God and he was God. And uh, all things that have been made have been made by him. So can he be a, a created being? Absolutely not. He was God and he has been God eternal. So any religion that wants to say that God was just, or Jesus was just a good man, he was created and, you know, he's a good man. No, uh-uh. He's the creator. And how can you have something created be a creator who created him? He was the creator. But I'm getting off on a sidetrack side there. I don't want to do that. So um, anyway, just kind of a little bit of an introduction to who Jesus is and just, just a few little nuggets there. We'll, like I said, we'll get in a little bit deeper into that scripture one of these days. But today I want to go ahead and just start with a big bang here with the first words that Jesus spoke as his, in his ministry. Okay? So he said some things prior to kind of the inauguration of his actual setting apart ministry. And those things are all really good. If you will turn in your Bibles over to Mar uh, Matthew 4, we're going to get started. How many of you guys love the family of God? I am looking out here, I am seeing so many babies. There's babies out there, there's children running around. Don't you love this? I love all the babies and the kids in this church. I don't want a quiet church. I would rather hear babies crying and talking and laughing and yelling than just to have a silent, quiet, look at this, there, there's one right there, getting away. Oh, I love it. I love it. One, year, one day, uh, one Sunday, you know, we're always, when we were very first starting the church, we always wanted to have everything neat and tidy and perfect. It was all about neat and tidy and perfect. And, you know, we had a, we had a little church body. It was probably about right here, this size or whatever. And uh, one day, we were having a sermon, you know, and God's moving. And all of a sudden, the little kid came tearing, got, had escaped and came tearing in and tearing and tearing. I'm like, oh, my word, we're all going to die. And, uh, you know, be, but, you know, in reality, this is our life. Family, right? Children. Okay, back to the sermon. Matthew 4, are y'all there? 
Okay, so if, as you read through Matthew here, uh, we've, got, we've got Jesus born in chapters 1 and 2 and uh, survives uh, the holocaust of children uh, there in Bethlehem. And he's, he grows up, and we've got John the Baptist proclaiming, uh, kind of going before him, kind of setting things up. And then chapter 4, we see Jesus. Well, first of all, just before that, he gets baptized by John the Baptist. So he gets baptized, and we talked a lot about that at Woven. You should have been there. It's great. So then we, um, we get him baptized, and then we find in chapter 4 that he goes out into the wilderness, and he's, he's, he's tempted. You all know that story? So he's being tempted and all of that kind of thing. And then I want you to turn over. Um, we're going to, I'm going to actually, it starts in 17, but I'm going to, um, we're going to start with verse 12, if I, if I may. So if the projection gal Marissa back there, I have her working hard. Uh, but verse 12, when Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in the darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So here we are. He's all set up. He's baptized he's passed his tests facing the devil himself and he is on the brink of starting his three-year ministry of actual active ministry of preaching and teaching and doing his miracles and what is the first thing out of his mouth verse 17 from that time on jesus began to preach repent for the kingdom of heaven is near now that's the first pastoral message that he gives. And that's found also in some of the other gospels. It's very clear, it's very delineated that that is his first message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Or some, the, uh, one of the other uh, passages says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And you're going to find now throughout the rest of Jesus' ministries, throughout the Gospels, the phrase for the, uh, about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is going to be used 84 times. Jesus either says it or it says he taught about the kingdom of heaven. So now what we're seeing is a very massive, strong push of Jesus and his teachings and his red letters is going to be about the kingdom of heaven. And the, the beginning half of learning about the kingdom of heaven is always the word repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent, kingdom of heaven. Two things, two concepts always linked together very closely. Okay, so today, in the few minutes remaining here, I want to just pull this sentence apart, and I want it to come alive to you. Because Jesus says it so emphatically, and we need to listen. Whatever Jesus says, honey, I am there listening. And I want to be able to know it and feel it and get it inside of me. So repent in the kingdom of heaven. To me, that's two different concepts, and we're going to kind of take them separately, if you don't mind. Are you with me? And I'm going to do it backwards. I'm going to do kingdom of heaven first, and then we're going to take repent, all right? So this kingdom of heaven business, 84 times in red letters, uh, 
And of those 84, I think four of them are black or, you know, a few of them because it says, and he taught about, right? Like I already said. So 84 times it's mentioned in the Gospels. But as I was doing my study, you know, it's like this kingdom of heaven, what it's kind of, it's a concept. It's a theory. It's where is it? What is it? Who is it? What, what, what? Because, you know, I understand the kingdom of Mexico. I understand the kingdom of Canada or whatever, you know, countries, because they're hard. They, they have a, a, a capital and they have a president I can go talk to or, you know, a king or something like that. But the kingdom of heaven is very ethereal. But I want to understand it because if Jesus is saying it so much, we better get this thing, right? So as I was doing some, some study on the kingdom of heaven, I noticed that so it's spoken so heavily about Jesus, by Jesus in the Gospels, but it's mentioned a few times actually in the Old Testament. And the gentleman who talks about it is Daniel. So I want to take you back to Daniel. So we're going to leave the red letters a little bit because I want you to see where the kingdom of heaven is introduced. Will you turn over in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7? And um, it's very interesting. This is Old Testament. And Daniel's a prophet. And he speaks into the future. And his prophecies have been spot on. I, I could, we could do a whole sermon series on the book of Daniel and blow your brain away about how real this thing is that the prophecies that have been foretold have come to pass so daniel in the chapter chapter seven and i'm not going to go word for word and this is not going to be an expose necessarily of end times so please don't expect that here because that's probably not my forte right now but the bottom line if you were to read through daniel seven you're going to see that it opens up talking about four different beasts there is a um there's a lion, a bear, a leopard, and then I, there's no name for the fourth beast. It's kind of this, just this terrifying description of this beast. And then and earlier in, uh, in elsewhere in Daniel, then he starts to liken those four beasts to four kingdoms. Four kingdoms. And those kingdoms are the kingdoms of this world that are going to come in succession. So just let me give it to you very, very quickly and very, very simply. Don't let me lose you. Stay with me. I don't want you to get muddled because we're going to go back to the red letters in just a minute. And it's going to make perfect sense. Okay? So the first beast uh, is equal to the, the uh, kingdom of Babylon. Now, the king of, kingdom of Babylon was uh, initially inaugurated about 625 B.C., a long time ago, Babylon. So in all of, I'm a history buff, and I love to read about history, and I don't just like the history of one little thing. I have taken it upon myself to learn all of history. I mean, like, all of it. So that means you have to go way on back on back at the beginning. And I will just tell you that history is all about war. It's all about war. It's about conquest. It's about overcoming. It's about, first of all, we were all these scattered people, and then they start to coalesce. And then one scattered people that coalesces gets stronger than the other and then kind of takes over. And then another, these people over here start to coalesce and come together, and they take over them. And now their kingdom is a little bit bigger. And then another people over here, they live, and they're cool, and they do their thing. And then another kingdom rises up and takes over that one until we have just massive kingdoms that take up the, the then known world. Okay, so Babylon was one of the very first groups of people, and I'm not going to say the, you know, the, but one of the first that really seriously kind of rose up and started to take over and actually had a kingdom. And if you read about Babylon, it's a pretty serious kingdom. 
So then, there's, so, um, then uh, after Babylon, uh, so they kind of came into power about 625 AD. Then another group of people began, began to coalesce, and they rose up even stronger than Babylon, and so they conquered Babylon. And those were the Persians. Everybody say Persian. And that was, uh, that was 536 B.C., so then Persia's like the cool thing, and they're ruling everybody and, and all of that. And then another group of people begin to coalesce and rise up, and they beat Persia. And that's Greece, the Macedonians, Alexander the Great. And now all of a sudden what we're starting to see is a kingdom that begins to envelop very large swaths of the settled world. Alexander the Great conquered the world. So he was really, Greece was really big and it was rolling and it was ruling over everybody. And then finally another empire rises up. Does anybody remember what that empire is? Rome. So a bunch of people start to coalesce. They come together and they overthrow Greece and they now begin to reign and rule over even greater areas. So we've had uh, four kingdoms, just like Daniel Reads, uh, gives us. Now, I want you to look at verse 13 of cha chapter 7, because now he's talked about all of these kingdoms. So Rome is no longer. Rome never got truly conquered by a single person or a single group of people. Rome disintegrated. But according to the Bible, the kingdom, there was a kingdom that overthrew Rome. And let me read to you about it. Verse 13, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given all authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So in the midst of the Roman Empire that had overtaken the entire world, the might of men who had finally conquered most of everything that had been civilized at that point, I mean literally, and they were reigning and ruling and there was nothing that could beat the Roman machine. And never was there a people that truly rose up and destroyed it. It disintegrated in of itself because of its moral decay. But in the midst of its reign and its rule, about 30 AD, in a little tiny province that Rome had overcome and had easily been, been over, over dominionating or what, what's the word? Ruling over. Called Palestine, a small city named Jerusalem. There was a man who was born in that area and he grew up and he was not just a man but he was God and man at the same time and he rose up and in the heavens and it was prophesied long before any of these dominion and these nations took took their place that man was God that Jesus was prophesied that he would enter into the throne room and that God would give him all dominion and all power over all men and he would be given a kingdom that would never be taken away. 
That is deep. So when Jesus begins to talk about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand, that's what he's doing. He's announcing to the world that there's a kingdom that's going to overthrow Rome. And it's not a kingdom of flesh and blood, but it's the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ lived his life under the rule and dominion of the Roman Empire. But his teachings and his influence leavened the entire kingdom of Rome, that whole dominion. And even though Rome for some years punished and held them down and persecuted them and killed them and burned them at the stake and fed them to the lions, and even though the, the kingdom of Rome was not going to go down easy, it suppressed and suppressed and suppressed. This kingdom spread. It could not be silenced. And in 312, I believe it was, when Constantine became the new emperor and he had a dream the night before his battle to take take the the kingship he saw god and he saw the cross and he flipped his reason for taking over and he flipped all of rome on its nose in one day and now the roman empire became a christian empire And from that day on, Christianity has just been spreading and growing and growing and growing. Uh, Skip down here to uh, uh, verse 16 of the same. Okay, just start at 15. It's easier. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. Because now remember, let me tell you where where Daniel is living in that succession. Daniel lived in Jerusalem when Babylon came and took over. Babylon destroyed Israel. Israel, and took all of them captive back to Babylon. Daniel was in that. And he lived his life at the very beginning of these successions of these kingdoms. And he even actually was in the courts with Nebuchadnezzar and all those people when Persia came in and the King Cyrus came in and overthrew Babylon. And Daniel then began to work in the courts of Persia. So Daniel lived in that succession between Babylon and Persia, but as he taught and, and his, through his prophecies, he was seeing the rest of it happen. Are you cool with that? I'm not losing you, am I? So here's Daniel. He's like, what in the world are you showing me, God? Can you imagine what you would think if you were the one getting the download on this? What? I don't get it. I don't want to get it wrong. So verse 15, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the vision that passed through my mind disturbed me. So I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all of this. So he gave, he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But, look at verse 18, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. That's you. That's the kingdom of heaven. That's the kingdom of God that Jesus is birthing in his red letters. And you are now a part of it. You are now a part of it. You are an 
citizen, an, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And that kingdom did not come into position and into place through a bloody, power-filled, war-crushing, no. It came into place in a spiritual battle that happened one day on Calvary when God himself gave himself up for you and he crushed every spirit of darkness as he hung on that cross. The battle is not flesh and blood. The battle is not the ones that you're up against and the evil ones we see. The battle takes place constantly in this new kingdom when his saints are on their knees and they are overcoming darkness by the power of his word in their mouth. That's you. That's the kingdom of heaven. Now let's look at the other half of his sentence because it's really important. Because in, real, in reality, this one word. See, in, in the Bible, and as you, as you take Bible classes, they always say, go to the place of first mention. Always go to the first. Because that's where the original type is set. That's where the most important message is given. The first. So if you want to know how the world is supposed to be functioning, go to the first mention of creation. And in the garden, is, that's the way that God intended the world to be, right? So if you want to hear Jesus' message in a nutshell, go to his first word as a minister. And what is his first word? Repent. 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 So you know what? We better figure out what repent means. So let's, let's spend the rest of our time here to learn about repent. And I'm skipping a whole page of notes on the kingdom of heaven. Oh, it's killing me. But I don't have time. You have to come back next week and maybe. Because it's good. Repent. I don't know about you. But I think that the hardest thing, when I was a parent and my children were growing up, and I was dealing with them, and they would be good for a little while, and then they'd get naughty, right? Anybody understand that? And so I would have to come along and help them not be naughty anymore. And I would have to help them get off the naughty train and get back on the good train. And so for them to get off the naughty train and get onto the good train, it meant that I had to confront some things in them, and they had to change. So I would have to confront them. Okay, honey, it's not good to punch your sister. That's the naughty train. We don't do things on the naughty train. We don't punch sisters. We don't punch people. We, we just don't do it. Or actually, one of my children, I'd found him a frog. To little, you know, and he was little. He was maybe two or three. He went outside, found a hammer, and smashed that frog down through the, the sections of the deck. That's the naughty train. What in the world? How do children's brains think? What does this mean? I don't understand it. So I have to confront them and I have to say, excuse me, that's the naughty train. I need you to get on the happy train, good train, and you need to stay over here on the, the good train. Right? Well, to do that, I can either 
um, force them to never punch their sister, you know, to, I could tie their hands behind the back. But inside of them, they are still devising plans to get on the naughty train. But I could force them on the outside to be on the good train. But true, true joy to a parent is when the inside of them shifts over to the good train. Does that make sense? So what Jesus is saying when he says to repent, and I will tell you something. I would get my children, and I would say, honey, you can't punch your sister. <laughs> Gave me all the excuses. No, you can't punch your sister. It's not the right thing. So I need you to apologize to your sister. I need you to repent for what you're doing. And you know what I would get? Sorry. <clears throat> because the hardest thing to do ever is to admit that you are wrong and repent for your evil. How many of you guys can relate? And I can, find, I, can, I can tell you times when I am like in relationship with my husband and I have been on the naughty train. Anybody ever get on the naughty train with your spouse? Okie dokie. So I have, I frequently get on the naughty train. Frequently. You know, the, the fire that burns in me, if it's burning good, it's good. But if it's burning bad, it's bad. So I would get, I'll get on the naughty train sometimes. And, you know, the Lord has a way of slapping you and just kind of saying, <clears throat> and so I have to go to him. <clears throat> and he's like, what? <clears throat> I'm sorry. Anybody ever been there? Join me with my, come on. I'm sorry. Repenting is the hardest thing. Because what it's doing is it's not just trying to conform the outside. It's trying to go down into the inside. And I need my phone because I have a quote that is right next to you. God does not want, and it's his first thing, repent. The, first, the very first thing that God wants to do is to go down deep into your soul and find the very inner side of you. And he wants, that's the peace he wants of you. He doesn't want your outward. He wants your inward. And when Jesus, you know, all through the Old Testament, it was about the outside. Do this, do that. Wash like this. Walk like this. Don't touch this. Don't do this. Don't say this. Look like this. Wear this. Don't touch that. Don't hang with those people. Uh, the, whole out, the whole Old Testament was all about the outward. And believe me, the outward is important. But that's not the most important to Jesus. And our new covenant, our new Savior, the Savior who came, his first words was repent. And so his first message was not to the outside behaviors of how you act, but his first word was a packed message that was sent from the throne of God through his voice, through his mouth, into your heart. And he said, I want the very depths of your being. And I want the very depths of your being, the very deepest part of your soul to be drawn to me. I want you to repent of everything that has been going on in the very depths and the very darkest places of your soul. He said, I know them. 
You can't hide that from me. I know it. I'm so aware. And I am still so deeply in love with you that I want you. I want you. I want to reach down in there and I want to grab that portion of you and I want to draw it to me. But I can't. I need you to let go of everything else on the inside of you and I want you to repent. Because Jesus knows that if he holds your heart, he holds the outside too. He knows that if he holds your heart, he holds all of you. And that's what he's after. That's what he's after. Repent is not regret. Say you blow up with your boss, you lose your job, you go home, and, and at first you're all blustery, and, ah, and then you realize, oh my word, I don't have a job. Now you regret what you did. That's not repentance. It's not admitting wrong. It's not seeing what you've done and have humility. It's a bummer. Repentance is not embarrassment. You were gossiping, and the person that you were talking about was behind you and heard every word you said. Now you're embarrassed. Now you feel bad. What is she going to think about you? What will she tell other people? You now feel bad out of a love for your own reputation, not because you hated the sin that you committed. That is not repentance. Even apologizing isn't repentance. I'm so sorry if I did something wrong. That's not admitting sin. Repentance is a change in yourself, a realization that I am really kind of not naturally a good person. Repentance is, a, is an admission that there is a thing called sin that I regularly take part of, that my inner heart, you can find so much in there that isn't right. And that repentance says, I hate sin. Sin is real and I hate it. True repentance looks at God and quits blaming him, quits putting deals on him, but says you're a God and you're a good God and you love me and your word is true. There's nothing more important than repentance. You can't go to heaven without it. That's it. You cannot, when you die, you will die. Everybody raise your hand that's going to die someday. You are going to die. And the day you die, the Bible's very clear. You're going to walk up to the judgment seat of Christ. And you will be judged at that moment, but everything that you have been repented of, that you have repented of, will be covered under the blood and never seen. Never seen. That's the message of Jesus on the cross. Everything that you have ever done that, has, that needs to be repented of, if you repent it, put it under the blood of Jesus, it is gone, washed away. That's repentance. I want the band to come.
please? See how nice I am? I really am nice. I want to read to you something. What is repentance? I was in the car driving over from Spokane with some very dear, dear people sitting right over here. Young kids, I love them. They're kids, even though they're 30 now. Wow. We were talking, just talking and having such good time, such good fellowship. I loved every second of it. But we kept talking about really what life yields, comes down to is what you yield to and yielding to the Lord. This is a small little writing that um, Oswald Chambers, I read, and I love it. He bases it off of Romans 6, 16. You are that one's, you are that one's slave's whom you obey. Oh, you are that one's slave, slaves whom you obey. You get it? Okay. Not the best English, but it is what it is. The first thing I must be willing to admit when I begin to examine what controls and dominates me is that I am the one responsible for having yielded myself to whatever it might be. If I am a slave to myself, I am to blame because somewhere in the past I yielded to myself. Likewise, if I obey God, I do so because at some point in my life, I yielded myself to him. If a child gives in to selfishness, he will find it to be the most enslaving tyranny on earth. There is no power within the human soul itself that is capable of breaking the bondage of the nature created by yielding. For example... Yield for one second to anything in the nature of lust, and although you may hate yourself for having yielded, you will now have become enslaved to that thing. Remember what lust is. I must have it now. Whether it is the lust of the flesh or the lust of the mind, no release, no release or escape from it will ever come from any human power, but only through the power of redemption. I'm going to put pause here. We think we're something cool as human beings. We think we're mighty and independent. But really, we are not. We are yielded to something. Every single one of us are yielded to something, and we become a slave to that thing that we are yielded to. You might think you are not a slave to anything. Well, I will tell you right now, you are a slave to yourself. You must yield yourself in utter humiliation to the only one who can break the dominating power in your life, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. He has anointed me to proclaim liberty to the captives. When you yield to something, you will soon realize the tremendous control it has over you, even though you say, oh, I can give that habit up any, whenever I want. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever said that? You will know that you can't. You will find that the habit absolutely dominates you because you willingly yielded to it. It is easy to sing, he will break every fetter, while at the same time living a life of obvious slavery to yourself. But yielding to Jesus will break every kind of slavery in a person's life. Jesus' first word was repent. Come to me. Come to me. 
Give me everything on the inside of you. Don't hold one thing back. Repent, 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 repent. I want you all to stand. I want you to just, if at all possible, close your eyes. Kicking off this red letter revival here today truly by truly getting into the red letters. The first message given of Jesus, which is to repent. And truly the word repent, as I said, is a word called yield. Knowing that as you stand here, you are laid bare before the eyes and the all-knowing Holy Spirit. And he calls you to yield every shred of everything inside of you. Now, most of you here have already yielded to him and said, I want to make you my Christ. I want to make you my Lord. That's not the end of repent. Repenting and yielding is a moment by moment, day by day walk that bitterness would never find a place in you. That anger would never hold a square inch of your heart. That lust would be under your foot. That sexual immorality will never drive you again. Because you've yielded. You've yielded. You've yielded to him to be the Lord of your life. And you are now a slave to Jesus. And let him rule your life and not you and not any other thing. C.S. Lewis said that there's only two people. There's only two people in the end. There's the ones that have said, thy will be done. And there's the ones that now God says to them, thy will be done. I pray that I am the one that will be in the camp that has raised her hands before the living God and said, thy will be done in every single area of my life, every single thought I think, every single word I speak, every action that I do, every person that I see, thy will be done through me. I will not hold on to one shred of anything of me. I will not be a slave to anything but your love in Jesus' name. And I will say to you that if you do not find yourself in that place, you will find yourself in a place where God loves you and, and recognizes your own free will. And he will say to you, okay, thy will be done. And he will step back. And believe me, I do not want that for anyone, including myself. So as, they, as, as we're getting, beginning to worship here, I want to open the altars. If this word of repentance, this word, word of yielding, if this word of allowing the Lord to be the Lord of your life is yours right now, I want you to make an action step. I want you to make an action step. I want you to come up and we're going to worship together and you're going to consecrate and you're going to respond to Jesus' first word. If we had him in here and it was his first sermon, he would stand up here and just say repent. 
and I will respond. Amen? Thank you, Jesus. Come on up. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Let's worship. Let's worship. Let's worship. Let's repent deep, 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 deep in ourselves, Lord God. Praise you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Respond to his word. Respond to him right now. Respond. Just come on up. Find a place. I can't say that you're going to have a, a prayer partner with you. Just come on up and find a place and find yourself repenting. Come on up. Come on up. Come on up. Raise your hands before him. Set your place. Set your place. Yielding to him. Yielding to him. Yielding to him. Yielding to his work in your life. Yielding to him to be your leader, your guide, the head of your life. In Jesus' name, find a spot and allow the worship. Hallelujah. Yield. Yield. You've been carrying it too long. Yield to him. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. And as you are in your place, just worship continuing. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus.
the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's done it all. 